Let's sit. Let's learn. Let's evolve. Let's talk. No more whispering in our minds. Today you're listening to Let's Talk Black Excellence, bringing you big laughs and inspiring stories of black excellence from around the country. And in this, the 20th year of Let's Talk, this is your host, David Williams. Yes, you are tuned to Let's Talk Black Excellence. I'm your host, David Williams, proud Waka Waka man. I'm the owner and executive director of Glimba. But before we begin, I'd like to acknowledge country, acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands in which this show is broadcast from, from the West End Studios of Brisbane, and acknowledge their elders, both past and present, and to all of our elders right across the country who've passed our knowledge through generations to allow us to practice our culture today. Well, my guest today is an advanced care paramedic and Indigenous Liaison Officer at Queensland Ambulance Service. She's also an adventurer and literally someone who I've known all of my life. Welcome to Let's Talk Black Excellence, Emma Williams. Hello, Brother Dave. How you going? Very well, thank you. Now, when I say have literally known me my whole life, uh, you are my older sister. But for our listeners, as we do on Let's Talk, we'll start with your mob and your country. Hey, I'm a Waka Waka girl, um, and I'm currently living on beautiful Kabi Kabi country on the Sunshine Coast. Now, as I've just introduced you there as Advanced Care Paramedic and Indigenous Liaison Officer, I guess for our listeners, how did you end up being a paramedic? What brought you to the field of being an ambulance? How long have you got, Dave? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> as you know, a bit of a complex story, but um, the brief version, I never finished high school. I was one of those people that actually never got a grade 10 certificate. So I've been working full time since I was 15 years old. Um, our grandmother and an absolute amazing woman, um, visionary of her time, um, highest priority for her family was working hard to ensure that our father and our aunties and uncles all received an education growing up as an Aboriginal family in Australia. And, um, we're very lucky to have, um, some hardworking aunties and uncles that, um, not only completed their high school education, but went on to obtain university degrees as well. And grandma was an absolute inspiration in my life. I always wanted to go to university, but not having the opportunity earlier on when I, um, left home at such a young age and, uh, started working full time. Didn't have the grades or anything to enable me to get into university, but it was always something at the back of my mind that I knew I wanted to do to... She'd worked so hard to provide that opportunity. I wanted to make grandma proud and, and get myself to university. It just took me a long time to figure out what that was going to be. So went off and had a bit of a career with the federal government, worked at the Australian High Commission in London. And it was towards the end of my time over there that I was thinking about going to university. So I was looking for a career that was going to be, I guess, challenging something that was going to be a learning opportunity and something that was going to be different every single day when I was going to work. The job I had at the High Commission was um, extremely varied and diverse, so I didn't want to be sitting um, in an office anymore. I wanted to make sure that I was out there, and I've always been drawn to helping people. Cliché as it is, I get so much um, reward out of the job that I do now. So eventually decided on paramedics. I only wanted to go to uni once, so it was my second career choice. 
Oh, that's deadly. And um, when you say it's very, what does a typical day look like in as a <laughs> as a paramedic, if there is ever a typical day? <laughs> I don't think you can have a typical day, but I mean, the, the things that are standard, you start at a station. <laughs> so you rock up and you, you log onto your truck after you've done all of your checks. And then for me, I leave station at seven o'clock in the morning and our day doesn't finish until 12 hours later. And we could be traveling anywhere within that time. Like we're a Sunshine Coast crew but we might end up in Brizzy. I've gone as far south as the Gold Coast in a day, um, further north than Gympie, as far west as Mergen. So yeah, it, it, I think that that's the biggest appeal for me. And I think too, no two days are the same. Are there any standouts in terms of um, patients that you've treated or scenarios that you found yourself in that make you think, yep, this is why I do what I do? For me, I have so much respect for our older population and um, we have an elderly demographic on the Sunshine Coast. So you can make a really big impact on somebody's day just by taking the time to listen to them and hear their stories. We have so many interesting people out there and it's just learning from that generation that came before us. So it might only be Nana who calls because she needs someone to make her a cup of tea. That's my favourite job. <laughs> so there you go, uh, our listeners out there. If you want a cuppa and a visit, don't, <laughs> don't call, uh, don't call triple, triple O, but um, it, it has been known to happen. So in addition to being out on the road in that role, you're also the Indigenous Liaison Officer for Queensland Ambulance Service. Can you tell us a little bit about what that entails? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so that role as an Indigenous Liaison Officer, or ILO, we try and be the conduit between our government organisation and the community, and we all know how important it is that we understand the communities that we're living and we're working in. Um, so the QAS has worked really hard to create the Indigenous Liaison Network and we don't just have our ILO officers within that network, we actually have cultural capability champions who are our non-Indigenous allies. So we recognise the importance that those people can um, bring to the journey that we're all on to try and improve healthcare outcomes for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. So you'll see us at NAIDOC events. We try and do CPR awareness within the community, first aid provision where we, where we can and just a takeaway there, like we'll have an ambulance there so that our, our little people can come along and jump in there and it takes away any of the fear that might be happening when, you know, everyone, it's a big emergency, but hey, we're just there to help and keep people safe. And I do remember that last year at the Cotton Tree NAIDOC Day, um, I had my two little ones there and they <laughs> jumped on the, do you call it a gurney or a stretcher or what's... Stretcher what's... generally, yeah. <laughs> I think gurney's a bit more Americanised, but you know. <laughs> and, you know, they, they jump on there and they go up and down and, and all that, yeah. Yeah, which is which is great, and then get to see the inside of an ambulance. I even had them down on the little CPRA um, mannequins, you know, <laughs> learning how to how to do the uh, most important thing we can do in the community. <laughs> and I guess for um, for our listeners, one thing I thought I, I would share is one of the benefits of having a sister who's a paramedic is all those family get-togethers <laughs> with young ones, and they they fall off and they chip their teeth, and you're not sure if they're concussed or anything like that. We've had a number of those instances <laughs> over the years, so it, it is quite handy. <laughs> But in addition to your role at QAS, Queensland Ambulance Service, you're also a bit of an adventurer and have uh, taken part in a number of, I guess, adventurous outings over the last couple of years. First of all, it was two years ago, I believe, that you walked, you trekked um, from Alice Springs all the way to Broome. Can you share with us how that came to be and, and what that was like? <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so... 
The adventure from Alice Springs across to Broome was actually the second part of my partner's journey. So uh, my partner James is um, luckily a, a crazy adventurer and I, he gets all of these weird and wonderful ideas and I get to go, oh yeah, that sounds like fun. Why, why don't we go and try that together? So... James, back in 2020, when COVID first hit, he actually works in the travel industry, which unfortunately was pretty much put on hold uh, because of COVID. They specialise, his company, Chimu Adventures, specialises in South American and Antarctic travel. And the South American team were absolutely plunged into poverty. They didn't have any government assistance um, when there was no income coming in like we did in Australia. So there was real concerns about um, food safety, food security, sanitisation, um, hygiene, which just they weren't being supported with over there. So Chimu were looking at ways to raise money um, to try and fund uh, the South American citizens. And uh, James, being a little bit mad, was like, oh, yeah, well, I've always wanted to walk from one side of Australia to, to the other. I think his original plan was going from north to south following some of our previous explorers. But, yeah, ended up deciding that he'd walk from home, Alexandra Headland on the Sunshine Coast, to try and get to Bunbury in Western Australia, which is straight across the Nullarbor Plain once he got to South Australia. And then with the COVID border closures, he got to Port Augusta in South Australia and was not able to go any further west. So he ended up going north, finishing at the beautiful Uluru. And we went back uh, two years later to finish his trans-Australian journey. So we walked uh, from Alice Springs across to Broome. And we took one of the most remote tracks that there is in Australia. We crossed the Tanami track through the Tanami Desert. We've got an incredible flatmate, Brett Dorrington, who is an engineer in welding works, who created the trolleys that we pushed, which had capacity for 60 litres of water below, all of our camping food equipment on top. And we pushed those uh, (laughs) through the desert. Um, It was 1,700 kilometres. 1,100 k's of that was unsealed. Uh, So pushing these trolleys through bulldust, gravel, uh, sand, um, skull dragging them at times because you couldn't push them, you couldn't get any momentum. And it took us 39 days to get from uh, Alice to Broome. <laughs> Sorry, I don't want to say that there was only uh, three stops along that way for showers, <laughs> but, you know. But the, most, the incredible thing about that is when you actually tell people about it, oh, yeah, this is my sister and a partner, Jane, they're walking halfway across Australia. <laughs> Normally the first response is like, what? what? <laughs> but what's involved in doing that? Obviously, you need to do some preparation around that, but there was one guy um, who we've worked with uh, who's based in Alice Springs, and he's a film director and, and um, camera operator, and he kind of spent specialises in location scouts as well. And when I rang him up and said, oh, yeah, my sister's going to be walking from Alice Springs to Broome, and, and he just kind of just went, what? <laughs> uh, you realise what the Tanami track is? And I'm like, mm. well, I, I don't personally, but, uh, yeah, so what's involved? How do, you, how do you go about... Preparing for that? Yeah. Um, I guess it was a... James was lucky. He'd already done a fair bit of walking. So his, the first half of his journey was two and a half thousand kilometres for him to get from Al, um, Alexandra Headlands to Uluru. He took a, um, you know, one of those bicycle 
baby carriers. Uh, So it was a pram. Mm -hmm. I said he was pushing his pram across (laughs) Australia. And he learnt from that pretty quickly that the the wheel size isn't good when you get punctures. He had a lot of issues with that. So the first thing was trying to develop what we were going to do to cart our gear because that's one of the biggest logistical, uh, I guess, hurdles when you're um, in such a remote area. So once we had our, our trolleys built, it was it was training, um, lots of walking, like it's just specific. You've got to be on your feet, you know, oh, 10 hours a day. We were pretty much um, on average walking a marathon a day. So we needed to train for that. We were training on the Sunshine Coast that was going through an extremely wet season um, before we actually went. So we were training in the rain to go and walk in the desert, which didn't make too much sense, but hey oh, And then... It was working out what facilities we had to top up our food and our water because you can't survive too long in the desert without either of those. So Alice Springs to Yuandamu, the first community store that we were able to access, about 300 kilometres, and then we were planning and topping up our food for the next 550 kilometres to get us to Billaluna. We were very fortunate that the Tanami gold mine, smack bang in the middle of that track, allowed us access as, as far as the front gate <laughs> so that we could get um, a water refill. So that helped us a little bit in regards to our weight. And then, um, yeah, from Villa Luna, we sort of, uh, we managed to get to a couple of roadhouses, which was nice because we could then have a shower as well as resupply. So James was lucky that he already had the mental preparation. He knew what was involved in being in such a remote place. I had no idea. And I... I don't think you can prepare for something like that apart from going in without any expectations and I was really surprised. Um, we were able to lean on each other. Like, you know, we would both have bad days and the other one would, would pick the other one up. Um, doing it together was a really good, a really good taster for that expedition lifestyle. And it became a bit routine. Like I, I'm an early morning person. I wanted to make sure that I was up for that sunrise every day because it is spectacular out there in the um, in the outback of Australia. So, you know, the schedule, James probably wanted to have an extra hour sleep in the morning, but we negotiated. And then we just absolutely immersed ourselves in the environment that we were in. We did uh, approach traditional custodians to obtain permission to be guests on their country as well. So that was really important for me. And we even had some come out to, um, to the Tanama my track to, to say g'day as we were on our little walkabout journey um, west on their country. So, yeah, highly recommend it. Oh, it's deadly. <laughs> if you've just tuned in, you are listening to AAA Murray Country. Let's talk black excellence with my guest today, events care paramedic and Indigenous liaison officer at Queensland Ambulance Service. Emma Williams, uh, who's just sharing with us some of her adventurous adventures recently walking from Alice Springs to Broome. I guess you just mentioned those sunrise, you know, you're seeing that every morning. You're seeing a completely different part and landscape of the country from where you call home at the Sunshine Coast. What's it like? You got nothing else but your, your cart. <laughs> yep. <laughs> James and his cart and, you know, and your gear. What's it like just really in that really remote part oh, of the country? It's red and it's raw and just beautiful. Some people, it's probably not for them. But for me, just being able to walk on country and appreciate the environment that we're in, like, I wouldn't 
listen to anything like podcasts or audiobooks until probably about 10.30 in the morning because the bird song out there was awesome and you would see like these little birds following you along the track because, hey, what the hell? <laughs> Who are these people and what are they doing? And having the different view of, you know, the sunrise and, and the sunsets, the colours change so much in such a short amount of time. But even if you're looking behind you, you're seeing a different view and a different perspective. So people would say, oh gosh, you must have been bored like walking that far every single day. But there was always something different. And because you're going so slow, you don't have a choice but to just soak in the atmosphere that you're in and, and yeah, just appreciate it. And uh, you've got little birds, you know, kind of seeing people walking through. They're thinking, you know, what's going on here? But no doubt that would have happened for travellers who would, and you know, would be travelling along that track. How often would you see someone and um, and what was their initial <laughs> reaction? <laughs> so pretty much people are like, are you guys crazy? Do you need water? <laughs> like what on earth are you doing? Um, a lot of people who take that track certainly don't expect to see people walking it. <laughs> Some days you would have maybe five to ten cars pass you, but honestly it's, it's pretty remote, which was another real appeal of being out there. Like there's no technology. There is absolutely no service out there so you are completely um, removed and isolated you have no choice but to just become you know part of that experience and then off the Tanami track I'm not too familiar with that particular landscape but you hit Bitumen just before Fitzroy Crossing Fitzroy Crossing so yeah almost um Kimberley region and then yeah heading heading into Broome so like we were just like oh my gosh Bitumen, amazing. <laughs> like we've just walked. Um, I think, oh, I can't even remember what it took us, maybe like 24 days to cross the unsealed section. So we were like, yeah, Bitumen, we're going to be like pushing this out, going so fast. Um, and then because of the, the tyres and the wheels that we had and probably all of the, the damage that had been done underneath, we ended up starting to get punctures once we got to the Bitumen. No punctures in 1,100 kilometres of unsealed, but... But yeah, the wheels weren't holding up so good on the bitumen. So every day, a couple of times a day, we were repairing the tubes and the tyres. So <laughs> in some ways you're like, but hang on, this should be the easy bit. But then it's complicated by something else. So you just have to have to roll with it. And it was... Uh, it was actually really disheartening um, because we'd had this amazing experience of silence, being isolated. We got onto the bitumen and it's busy and there's grey nomads cruising along that don't care <laughs> that you've only got a little white line protecting you from, um, you know, where they're travelling. They, you know, wouldn't wouldn't give us uh, as much respect as they'd probably give a kangaroo that they didn't want to hit. <laughs> so that was interesting at times um, and having to, I guess, pay a lot more attention. I certainly wasn't listening to any audio books when we were on that bitumen. I was paying more attention to the cars that were now part of the environment we were travelling through. So after 20-something days, almost making it to, making it to Yara country there... Um, Broom, talk us through what that was like. Oh, it was incredible. We were welcomed onto country by Arnie Pat Torres and she gave us an official welcome to her country and it almost felt like we were home but com completely different, you know, opposite side of Australia. Um, but it was it was so special and just seeing that crystal blue water for the first time and, you know, the vivid red that's out there as well, like the contrast in in that was spectacular. You know, we, we joke about it, but our end point was actually Matzo's Brewery. 
So we were walking through the desert to make sure that we got that icy cold ginger beer at the other end and it was uh, well received, <laughs> our reward. But we were very fortunate to be ahead of schedule. We pushed out a couple of big days. I remember one where we ended up walking 57 kilometres just so we could get to a rest point that had a table and chairs. We wanted to sit down and have our dinner. <laughs> you know, it was still only two minute noodles, but um, just the luxury of having a chair to sit on um, was pretty special. And yeah, we uh, explored the area for about five days as tourists and blown away by the generosity of strangers. People who we met along the way put us in touch with, you know, someone loaned us a car. We had accommodation. We were able to shower like every day <laughs> while we were in Broome. It was awesome. Now, you that was that was one completed leg of the journey. I guess at that stage you thought, well, I've already walked halfway across Australia. What am I going to do next? Tell our <laughs> listeners, <laughs> what did you do next? Well, I think being part of James's expedition and um, not feeling like a passenger, we were absolutely in that together. But it was the end of his journey of crossing Australia. It planted a little seed. And I'm kind of like, well, James has crossed Australia. Maybe I can cross Australia. And... I started to get this idea that, oh, well, you know, the walking was amazing, but it's really slow. Like I probably can't take that much time off work to walk the eastern side. I've had bikes for years. Why don't I maybe think about cycling solo? So, yeah, the idea was planted. I I thought, well, I probably just need to change my training. I'll actually get on a bike before I commit to this. But getting on the bike, I joined a group of cycling ladies and it was sort of like, oh, what you doing, you know, where you from? Uh, and I was like, oh, kind of got this um, idea about, you know, cycling from Alice Springs back to um, Alexandra Headlands because of the walk I did. I want to cross Australia. And they're like, oh, my God, that would be awesome. As soon as you verbalise something, you kind of committed yourself <laughs> to it. So in some ways I threw myself under the bus um, and, yeah, just started cycling and the body was adapting all right. And I'm like, okay, well, I guess it's just logistics now to be able to make this actually happen. All right, let's um, let's give it a crack. <laughs> From that kind of verbalising it, you've obviously got to go through the planning process. Um, talk us through what you actually had to do. I had to figure out, uh, you know, A, can I get the time off work? <laughs> that was probably the most important thing. All right, once that's approved, okay, well, I'm going to, how long is it going to take me? How far am I going to have to travel each day? And then what are my logistical stops along the way? So... I needed to find a bike as well that was capable of having uh, panniers on it and carrying a, a pretty big load, probably about 20 kilograms when it was fully loaded. And yeah, how am I going to make this happen? What route am I going to choose? And I was a little bit strategic in that as well. I wanted to make sure that on my way back, I was traveling through grandma's country. I wanted to appreciate Waka Waka country at a slower pace. So yeah, mapped it on out and put the training in. <laughs> Obviously, you need to build up to that. Thinking it was uh, relatively flat, I'm like, yeah, I can I can train for this on the on the sunny coast and you know, the the first sort of um <laughs> 2,000 k's were pretty flat, but once you get closer to the east coast, there's a couple of ranges you got to get over, and yeah, coming into the sunny coast, um, yeah, it's it's hilly, hilly country. And it's not just the hills, it's also the headwinds. <laughs> well, I thought living on the Sunshine Coast, I was very naive, and we often have winter westerlies, which make our ocean beautiful, so I was like, oh yeah, there'll be westerly winds pushing me home. Negative. 
it was mostly um, easterly, southeasterly uh, for the majority of my trip. I think it ended up being about 17 days straight <laughs> that I was cycling in and that meant that I needed to rethink my um, my plan and I, instead of just going, oh yeah, I can cycle during daylight hours, I was needing to get up and start by four every morning so that I could get a good solid 40k under my belt before the headwind started because I slowed down, you know, 15k's an hour <laughs> pretty much. They were vicious. So yeah, it's just, I guess, appreciating that you are such a tiny little, little thing in the uh, environment and changing your plans, being flexible. <laughs> And at one stage there, that wind was so strong that you actually had to get off and push your bike. I did. They were 60 kilometre an hour gusts. I was coming into Springshaw, extremely hilly out that way. And yeah, it just wasn't safe for me to be going up and down on the same road as vehicles. So I was like, well, I've still got two feet. I can push a bike. That's 5k an hour. Oh, well, I'll get somewhere by the end of it. If you just tuned in, you are listening to Let's Talk Black Excellence with my guest today, Advanced Care Paramedic and Indigenous Liaison Officer at Queensland Ambulance Service, Emma Williams, my big sister Emma, who's also sharing with us some of her adventure stories. Alice Springs to Broome, walking and then cycling from Alice Springs to the Sunshine Coast at Alex Heads. Now, I've got some stats here with the particular uh, cycle Adventure, two and a half thousand kilometres, 23 days of cycling, 19 days of headwinds, and you were actually raising funds for the QAS legacy, raising over $6,000, which is pretty impressive. But also looking back at the walk that you did with James, one of the things as well is, of course, you wanted to give back to those whose country you were travelling across. So raising over $3,500 for the Purple House, which some of our listeners may be aware of it. Uh, It's an Indigenous-owned and run health service based in Alice Springs, and they provide remote dialysis clinics and mobile treatments to communities in the Northern Territory and WA. Now, that's two big adventures you've gone on. You've just completed (laughs) one recently. I picked you up from the airport the other week coming in from um, South America. Can you share with us what on earth were you doing over there? (laughs) Again, um, I'm going to have to blame James for this one. So James wants to do the Cedar Summit on all seven continents. One of those is... South America. So Mount Aconcagua is the tallest mountain in the Southern Hemisphere. It uh, sits at 6,961 metres <laughs> above sea level. So James left uh, a few days before me. He took Gloria, my gravel bike, my trusty steed that got me from Alice Springs all the way back to um, Alexandra Headlands. He took uh, the bike over and cycled the 300-odd kilometres from the sea to get to our starting point for the mountain expedition. Um, Mount Aconcagua is such a unique place. It is probably one of the driest and windiest that I've ever experienced. And we made a decision that uh, we wanted to do it a bit old school. We didn't employ porters. We carted all of our own gear up that mountain. And yeah, we, (laughs) we had a great adventure. You nervously laugh. <laughs> what were some of the challenges on, on that trip? Uh, some of the challenges, um, carting about 50 kilograms of equipment up the mountain. It ended up being a much heavier load than we wanted because of some lost luggage on the way over to South America. The bag that I was carrying that had our sleeping bags, our tent, our stove, our food, a lot of our warm gear, 
never arrived in Mendoza. <laughs> so we ended up having to rent gear, which enabled us to do the expedition, but meant that we were having to then logistically carry a lot more weight than what we'd previously expected. Um, the trek into the base camp for Mount Aconcagua, it's about 32 kilometres long. We were fortunate you do have mules that carry your gear that far. Um, so from base camp, we were then responsible. I guess you're acclimatising uh, throughout that journey in. You're camping along the way. Uh, you're doing acclimatisation hikes where you go to a higher altitude and then you come back down and you sleep to ensure that your body is adapting at the right pace to match what you're trying to do. Always subject to the weather. So your weather windows to actually attempt summits are controlled by pretty much the winds at this time of year. We had a windstorm that was uh, 150 kilometres an hour when we were at base camp. It blew down toilets. It destroyed the cafe. Tents were broken, ripped to pieces. Ours survived somehow, like the rocks and everything that we tied it down was sturdy enough for us. But there was a point where we were leaning against the wall to make sure that we weren't going to get blown over as well. And yeah, you're then, I guess, at the mercy of the altitude and everybody adapts so differently. So somebody might be fine and you might be fine to a certain altitude and then, yeah, the, the sickness um, kicks in and you can't do anything about it, but descend. Um, they're very good in their regulations over there. So you do get medical clearance before you actually leave base camp to attempt anything higher up. But it took us two days to cart all of our gear up on acclimatisation hikes um, to Camp 2, which is where we based ourselves uh, so that we could attempt a summit from there. Our gear was a bit too heavy to sort of go to Camp 3, which was our original plan. But hey-ho, you, you just got to do what you got to do uh, when you're over there. So, yeah. So at that point, you can see the summit and you've got a small window to hit that because of weather. Mm-hmm. Talk us through what that was like. So ideally, like I just said, we would have um, carried everything up to Camp 3 if we'd had a bigger a bigger w- window. But we knew that um, the, the weather for us, summit day, was going to be the 19th and that was it. Like we weren't going to get another opportunity for about three days after that. So we were in Camp 2. We left uh, nice and early in the morning to enable enough time to get to the top of the mountain and return. Unfortunately, James became unwell at about 6,000 metres. So Camp 2 sits at uh, Camp Nido's sits at around 5,600 metres. So, yeah, just after Camp 3, he became unwell with some symptoms of, of AMS. So we pushed on for a little bit and then, yeah, realised it wasn't going to be safe for him to continue. Uh, and the fortunate thing about AMS, as soon as you descend, you get better. He went back down to Camp 3, um, was feeling good and continued back down to Camp 2. I was, <laughs> well, I'd been training a long time to try and get to the summit of this mountain. Um, so we did a little bit of a, an assessment and, yeah, he was happy to go down solo. I was happy to carry on solo. I wanted to, to see if I could summit Mount Aconcagua. <laughs> and you got that photo at the top. Uh, was that your phone or somebody else's? Because your phone... I didn't get a photo at the top. <laughs> and, can you, and can you tell us why? Because <laughs> it's minus 20 degrees and I've got this awesome little pocket for easy access on the outside of my backpack, um, right at my, my hip pocket. But because my phone was in it, it... It froze. <laughs> so, so you've trained all that time. You've you got to the highest peak in South America. You go to pull your phone out to take a photo, Nothing. evidence of it, and your phone isn't Nothing. working because it's too cold for your phone to operate. 
<laughs> Lesson to oneself. Um, mm. And because of the delayed time with trying to um, sort out James and his mountain sickness, I was actually a lot further behind than what I would have liked. They closed the mountain at 4.30 every afternoon for safety reasons to ensure that everyone can descend. And so I got there at 4.28. I did not even get to sit down at the top because the mountain police rescue men turned me around and said, not nah, time to go down. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> that's um, that's incredible. So that was obviously a, a big trip that you did. The next trek you're going to be doing is going to be pretty small in comparison to, to what you've just done. Can you share with us what, uh, what you've got coming up later this month? Yeah, so I, I guess I'm well-primed and hopefully appropriate acclimatised. Um, I've got the... I'm going... Well, you tell them where we're going, Dave. Well, this is, I'm, I'm the host, you're the guest. So for some of our listeners uh, will be aware that there is a, a trek at Everest Base Camp happening uh, next month, following on from Joshua Creamer, who did it last mm. year. He contacted me and, and a couple of others and just said, look, I'm, I'm doing this again and um, would love you to come along with me. And I was kind of like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it sent through the details and I thought, you know what, this is something that... I think I could do. So reached out to Brother Jai, who Alison would know, does Let's Talk Business earlier in the week. And then a couple of others going as well. We've got Crystal Kinsella, who will be going, Kevy O'Brien, uh, who's previously been on the show. And that's when I reached out to you and thought, well, mm. you know, you, you've done all this <laughs> walking across Australia, cycling across Australia, climbing all these mountains. This will, be, this will be a, a, a walk in the park. For you, literally, like just a stroll. <laughs> so you check those dates and you manage to shift some stuff around and you'll be part of, I think, potentially 12 of us all up who will be doing this trek. And, of course, it's also to raise awareness and funds for the Black Dog Institute around Indigenous mental health. But, Emma, can you share with us, I guess, what you're looking forward to for this trek and what sort of training you're doing for it? <laughs> or if you, if you need if, to do any training. Are. You've just <laughs> trained, you know, all last year to do Mount Aconcagua yeah. um, the other week. So. Yeah, Mount Aconcagua was about six months training, so it involved a lot of pack hiking. We live near Budrum, so we actually just mimic kind of what we're doing. It's a 20% gradient uh, towards the top of Mount Aconcagua, and it's unrelenting. If I had... Um, known what the terrain was like, I also would have been training in sand because it's extremely unsteady. There's a lot of shale towards the top where you're just taking two steps forward and sliding back one. So in some ways we were prepared, but that would have been a little bit of an extra benefit training wise. Doing something like that though, it's extremely hard physically and mentally. So I have needed to take some time off to recover. Ended up with a bit of a, a knee injury just as a result of the impact on the descent carrying about 20 kilograms on my back and having to walk down 20% gradients. Not a lot of fun. So the training now for Everest Base Camp, just trying to, to keep fit in between. So I've been on the bike, which doesn't aggravate the knee as much, and then was in Townsville for work, so a couple of laps up Castle Hill with a weighted backpack. And yeah, hopefully the acclimatization carries over, but I don't think it's going to be a walk in the park. Like Everest Base Camp's not just any an easy feat. Uh, it certainly does take physical and, and mental preparation to be able to just, you know, keep putting one foot in front of another for several hours a day. And I'm so excited to go on the cultural journey that will be a part of it. 
can't wait to, you know, meet the mob that I'm travelling with. Thank you, Dave. Um, I feel extremely fortunate to be able to take part in it and, yeah, looking forward to connecting and um, raising awareness for, for Black Dog. It's certainly something that we see in, in my line of work and if there's any way that we can create more awareness and, and reduce, you know, that, that rate of suicide, I'm 100% in. No, absolutely, 100%. Um, for those who've just uh, tuned in, you are listening to Let's Talk Black Excellence with my guest today, uh, Indigenous paramedic Emma Williams. So you're involved in a, a range of different initiatives with Queensland Ambulance Service with, you know, recruitment and, um, you know, it, it's great when I hear your stories around attending, you know, allied health conferences and, mm. and all of these other things, connecting with other mob you know, around the country and, and also overseas. Actually, I might ask you about that. Um, last year you are in uh, Vancouver. Can you tell us what was happening over there? Oh, so there's this incredible conference called Healing Our Spirit Worldwide and it brings together just such an amazing, inspirational bunch of Indigenous people from all around the world. We've all got uh, the common goal of improving healthcare outcomes and we just... Uh, it, it just blew me away. The cultural connection that you get over there, meeting and learning from um, other countries that have similar colonial histories to Australia and the challenges that they're facing in their health cares, but also learning about the solutions that are starting to overcome these issues within their local communities. It, it really aligns and to be able to to learn from that, bring that back to Australia and look at the strategic plan for Queensland Ambulance Service and you know, submit my report with my recommendations about what we could be doing better within this space and actually, you know, being listened to. And I've got to put a shout out to Indigenous Allied Health Australia as well, who I've been a member of since I was at university, who have, you know, supported me on this on this journey through my healthcare career. They just, yeah, Donna and, and Nikki and the team just like, you know, they, they tell you about these opportunities. They provide us with, you know, leadership development um, opportunities. And, yeah, you know, Queensland Ambulance Service um, have a scholarship program called KJM McPherson. And I didn't think putting in my little application would uh, result in me going to Vancouver, but I was so lucky to be supported by the QAS for that opportunity as well. And part of your role also is to be able to, you know, you're a poster woman for a QAS. Um, <laughs> you know, they roll you out on the comms and <laughs> newsletters and that. But, but wanting to get more mob, you know, involved as paramedics, what are some of the initiatives that you're running around that? Yeah, so the Queensland Ambulance and I, um, when I joined back in 2015, I was a patient transport officer whilst I was studying at university. I very quickly joined our Indigenous paramedic program as a cadet. So Queensland Ambulance offer the IPP cadet program um, and train new officers in-house. We're provided with a certificate for in healthcare. You're then enrolled into the Diploma of Paramedic Science and on completion of that, you're then enrolled into the Bachelor Degree of um, Paramedic Science, uh, currently with Central Queensland University. So the IPP is being designed to recruit from community. We have elders on our recruitment panel to ensure that we've got our community fit right after consultation with them. Once our cadet 
uh, joins the Queensland Ambulance, they're provided with full-time employment as well as an education opportunity to travel that university pathway to become a, a registered paramedic and obtain a university degree. The prerequisites are that you need to have finished Year 12 or have done a Certificate 3, but we're about to open our next IPP recruitment drive, but we've got uh, positions statewide, and it's amazing to see the support that Queensland Ambulance had given this. When I joined it in 2016, we had 16 cadets statewide. We've grown that to over 50, and we're just continuing to um, to improve what we're doing to get our healthcare delivery right to our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities. We've also got our, our emergency call-taking centres, our operations centres that are looking at filling recruitment on an ongoing basis, so there are expressions of interest currently open on the QAS website. And for those who want to um, know more information about that, um, where can they go? If you just Google QAS Indigenous Recruitment, it will pop up with our page. All of the information and details about the IPP program and the pathway are on there. And then if you also go on to the EMD or Emergency Medical Dispatcher information page, you'll be able to fill in an EOI there too. Well, thanks very much for your time. You have been tuned to Let's Talk Black Excellence, where we've been talking to my guest in the studio today, paramedic and adventurer, uh, Emma Williams. Thanks very much for your time. Anytime, Dave. Thank you for your... No more whispering in our mind. Let's talk Monday to Friday at 9am no on AAA Murray Country, the National Indigenous Radio Service and iHeartRadio. You can catch up on AAA.org.au. Proudly supported by the Community Broadcast Foundation. 